The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching. Today's teaching. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Assistant Pastor. Assistant Pastor Austin Salisbury. We are starting a new sermon series today called Kingdom Come. And I want to read you a sampling of just a few of the times in the New Testament when the phrase kingdom, kingdom of heaven, or kingdom are used. See if any of these sound familiar to you. And again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Fear not, little sheep, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And finally, when Pilate called Jesus and said to Him, Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. These are just a few of the over 100 verses in the New Testament that mention this word kingdom. Either Jesus mentions it, or Paul mentions it, or it's mentioned uh, by uh, John the Disciple and John the Revelator. This idea of kingdom is a big idea. There's no idea more central to the teaching of the New Testament, to Jesus' ministry, or to the life of Christians today than the idea of the kingdom come. But what exactly is the kingdom come? How did Jesus intend for his disciples to understand this idea, and what does it mean for us today? But today, as we start a new sermon series called Kingdom Come, colon, the parables of Jesus, we're taking a break from our Covenant People series, which we started back in September and which we have been studying all um, year long as we work from Genesis. Now we're in 1 Samuel. We're taking a break from that for a few weeks to look at the parables of Jesus and to look at this idea of kingdom. We are flash-forwarding from Covenant People to the New Testament and to the life of Jesus, but I think you will find, if you've been here over the last year, there's going to be some things that show up in the Kingdom Come study that will ring a bell for some of our studies from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, from the life of of Abraham and Moses and David and Saul. Some of those things will make an appearance this summer, and you may be surprised to find out how often Jesus works in parallels. Well, Here we are in the Kingdom Come series, and we are going to first look at one thing today. We're going to look at the idea of kingdom, 
And secondly, we're going to look briefly at Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, our first of the parables where Jesus talks about salt and light. So we're going to look at the big picture of kingdom, and then we're going to look briefly at one of the examples of the parables of Jesus. I believe that we will discover, as we look at these stories over the summer months, uh, summer weeks, excuse me, uh, that the, the stories that Jesus tells, the images that he evokes, and the truth that he's sharing about the kingdom come are simultaneously surprising, challenging, beautiful, and deeply profound. So please pray with me as we enter into this new sermon series. Father God, thank you for today, for the summer for the sunshine and the opportunity for us to see your creation in full bloom. We ask that this summer, as many teachers come to, to, to share the truth that you first gave to the world 2,000 years ago, that we would, our eyes would be opened, but more importantly, that our hearts would be opened. Be with us today, Father, uh, as we look at your word. Amen. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven simply sometimes called the kingdom, these three phrases are more or less interchangeable in the New Testament. So sometimes Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven is like, or sometimes he will say the kingdom of God, and when he does that, essentially he's talking about the same thing. So don't be confused about that. But what exactly is it? Now, if you're reading the uh, New Testament, there's a great character, probably one of my, my favorite characters in the Bible, definitely the manliest character in the New Testament, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he, he lived in the woods, and he, he wore strange clothes, and, and he, he ate bugs and honey, and he was just a manly man, right? And when Jesus comes onto the scene and begins his public ministry, the first thing that John is recorded to say is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is something that, that John the Baptist says. Now, if you're reading that in the Bible, one thing you'll notice is that the gospel writers, they don't explain what the kingdom of God is. Isn't that interesting? That uh, it goes right on into the narrative. And although it's a little confusing for us today, sometimes these ideas are complex and, and very deep, uh, John the Baptist doesn't take the time to stop and explain to his Jewish audience what the kingdom of God is. And the reason why is because they knew what it was. In fact, this idea of kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven was something that Jewish uh, people in the first century Palestine, they were desperate for the kingdom of God to come. They studied it in Sunday school and in their youth group or whatever they had in the first century uh, Jewish uh, schools and temples. It was something that they were thrilled that would come eventually. It was not a new idea. For the Jews of Jesus' day, the kingdom of heaven had ancient roots. They went all the way back to the time of King David, about a thousand years before Christ. And the core of their understanding was that the kingdom of God would come when the reign of the saving king began. And the word they used was Messiah. The Messiah would be an earthly king who was extremely powerful politically, and he would save the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the scattered tribes of Israel, from their oppressors. Now, this idea of Messiah shows up a lot in the Old Testament, okay? So, if you want to learn a little bit more about it, I would encourage you to look at 2 Samuel, um, where God promises David that his house and kingdom shall be made sure forever. His throne will be established forever. So God promises that David's line, the, the kings that come after David, his descendants, would last forever. 
which is interesting because the line of kings from David, it doesn't last forever, actually, in the Bible. It stops some point. So that's confusing. Like, wait a minute, David's great-great-grandkids didn't continue to be kings, but who was the great-great-great-grandson of David? Jesus. Not an earthly king, but a descendant of David nonetheless. Also, the prophet Jeremiah said this about the future Messiah. He said, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, meaning someone from his line, from his family, and he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. There's many passages like this in the Old Testament. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah, a king that would come and enter, usher in a new era. And they expected this to be an earthly king. The basic belief was held that someday God was going to establish a powerful kingdom where the Jews would not be oppressed any longer. And they saw that as the kingdom of God, where God's people would be ruled by an earthly powerful king who could not be uh, oppressed by the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Philistines. All these people who had terrorized Israel from the time of the Old Testament all the way through to the time of Jesus's life. So that was their expectations. Well, like so often in the Bible, God does something unexpected. And he sends a miraculous baby boy to the family of Mary and Joseph and Nazareth. And, uh, and, the, and the baby's born in Bethlehem. And he, he grows up as the son of a carpenter. And he blends in, for the most part, with his community and his brothers. And, and he lives and learns a trade. And he studies at the temple. Um, but there's something extraordinary about this child named Jesus, the son of Joseph is that he was the promised Messiah. And so something happens with the life of Jesus. The kingdom comes, but it comes very quietly at first. Jesus is 30 years old before he starts his ministry and before he starts talking about the kingdom of God in public. For 30 years, the kingdom had come on earth and... Only a very few people recognized it. One of those was Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, who said, repent, the kingdom is here. So, it was an unexpected kingdom. But how could it come without a leader, without a political leader, a military king? How could it come without an army and without angels and, and all this thing? How could that be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think there's two illustrations that help me understand it. Maybe one of these will be helpful for you. Uh, Maybe both will be helpful for you. Uh, It might be a bit confusing if you try to uh, merge these two illustrations. Just keep them separate in your mind, but I think they're helpful. The first comes from the theologian N.T. Wright, who says, the kingdom come is a little bit like an engagement. The promise of marriage is there once the engagement happens. Though the wedding ceremony, the culmination of the engagement, still may be some days off, weeks off, or years off, but the big party, the big celebration with the dress and the candles and the wine and the celebration, it's coming, but it's not time yet. The Bible describes the marriage of heaven and earth, and perhaps Jesus' coming into the earth is the inception of the kingdom by way of an engagement. So that might be helpful for you. Here's another illustration uh, that came from our illustrious church intern, Luke. Uh, This week he introduced us 
idea to me is very helpful for me as I think about it. Uh, those of you who know a little bit about world history, even the smallest bit, you've heard of something called D-Day. D-Day was the day in June 1944 when the Allied troops that had gathered in England, they, they stormed the shores of Normandy, France, and they began to push the German forces back towards Germany. That was in June of 1944, but the war didn't end in Europe until uh, the next year, in May of 1945. So even though the war wasn't over, the decisive battle had already happened. So the kingdom come could be also viewed as the beginning of the end of the battle between good and evil. You could think of it that way if you want to. So maybe you think of it as, uh, as an engagement where God has promised the world something brand new and beautiful through the life of Jesus. Or maybe you think of it as the beginning of an era where good begins to triumph over evil in the big picture of theology and eschatology and the end of the world. Either way you look at it, the kingdom, John says, and Jesus said, the kingdom has come. And that's where we arrive in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus. The kingdom has come. I like what the biblical scholars Green, McKnight, and Marshall say. This is how they sum it up much more eloquently than I ever could. They said this, Jesus took the long-standing Jewish tradition, the concept of God's kingdom, and transformed it from a narrow-minded, nationalistic hope to a universal spiritual order in which humankind could find the fulfillment of its ultimate desires for righteousness, justice, peace, happiness, freedom from sin and guilt, and a restored relationship to God, an order in which God alone was the king. That's the kingdom of God. It's not a political entity, but it's when people say, my king is Yahweh, God, the God Most High, the King of Kings. And the beautiful and amazing and surprising thing about it was, it wasn't exclusively for the Jews. For the first time ever, the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rebekah and Deborah and all these great heroes of the Old Testament that we know about, that God opened the gates of his kingdom to all the nations and tribes and tongues and people of the world. And thankfully, it's why we're here today. It's why St. Thomas went to, to, to India. It's why the missionaries went to Africa and South America and North America. It's why missionaries still go out. Because the kingdom of God is not a fortress on a hill with eight meter thick stone walls. It is a palace whose doors never lock and whose rooms are plentiful and waiting for you and me. It's great news. This is what happens when the kingdom comes. It's a big idea and I'm we don't have time to go into, this could be a sermon all on its own, is what does the kingdom mean, a sermon series that could last several weeks. But this is an introduction to you, and if, if you're interested in this idea of kingdom, there is a lot of literature out there. I encourage you to dive into it. There's over 140 verses in the Bible about kingdom, so there's a lot of scholars out there still wrestling with this idea and trying to figure out exactly what it means. But we're going to stop there today just and acknowledge that something new happened when Jesus came. It was something that was promised in the Old Testament. It was something that we see in great focus and detail in the Gospels, but that we still, each of us today, have to wrestle with ourselves. Because if the kingdom is at hand, if the kingdom really has come, as John and Jesus and the disciples and Paul said, 
then what does that mean for us? Well, now we're going to look at that. Because if the kingdom has come with Christ as the king, then that means those who are his subjects are citizens of the kingdom. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. It's very short, and so I'll read it here. It's also on the screen behind me. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. When I think of citizens of a great kingdom, I don't think of a salt and light. At least in my mind, if, if I'm thinking in Lord of the Rings vocabulary, I'm thinking of great soldiers with armor and spears and beautiful horses and ladies with long braids going down their hair and the flags, you know, the long skinny flags, the purple ones that look so awesome. I think of that when I think of a great kingdom. But Jesus says this about the citizens of the kingdom. He says, you are salt and you are light. Salt and light. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this, um, this passage comes from a time when Jesus gives his most detailed and his most complicated and his most uh, interesting, I, I think, one of his most fascinating sermons, this long sermon that touches on all kinds of theological things. But he says this in chapter 5. He says, you're salt and you're light. And he says it right after the Beatitudes. If you're familiar with the Beatitudes, those are the passages in Scripture where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you suffer in my name, and so on. All of these things that are essentially heart conditions. You're blessed when your heart is like this because you are submitting to God your Father, to, to truth, to love, right? So the, the Beatitudes are all about the heart being changed to follow God. And then immediately after that, he says this amazing thing about salt and light. Try to imagine being in the, uh, on the hillside uh, in, in, in Judea uh, in, in the first century, listening to Jesus say these words. And, and, you know, not everyone could hear him when he was speaking. And so the way it would work is he would preach, sometimes from a boat or from a little ways off. And then sometimes the words would, would pass up the, the crowd. And so someone, Jesus would say, you are the, the salt of the earth. And then he, he, he said he was salt of the earth. Salt of the earth, salt of the earth, salt of the earth. And, and the word would pass back. And I have this image in my mind of this, uh, of this, maybe this Jewish dad. And he's got his little girl with him. And she's sitting on, on his lap. And, and they're listening to Jesus. And, and, and he's telling her what Jesus said. And, and, and Jesus says, you are the salt of, of, of the earth. And, and he tells the little girl, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And, and she kind of says, what? And, and then... What else did he say, Dad? And he said, well, he said, you're the light of the world. And she says, what does that mean, Dad? And so then that first century dad 
has got to spend the rest of the weekend trying to explain to his little daughter about what it means to be salt and light. But luckily, in my imagination, this first century dad is great at explaining these parables to his daughter because he says, it means what Jesus is saying is that if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then you're going to look different than the others who are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Because the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are delicious. Everybody knows that salt is delicious, right? You can take a boring old potato, brown, flavorless, boiled in water, tastes like dirt, put a little salt on it, you've got the greatest invention in, in human history, the french fry, <laughs> right? You can take a piece of meat across a great wide ocean on a sailing vessel, sprinkle it with salt and it will last many, many weeks being preserved and able to give nourishment. Salt is a fascinating thing. This last semester in the youth group, we studied this passage together. Uh, and so in a way, I'm kind of cheating by reteaching it in church. Uh, but I, I felt practiced, so I thought maybe it was uh, actually really responsible of me. Uh, but what we did in the youth group was we talked about how, what, it, what does it mean to be salt in the world? I can't really be salt. Yes, my body has salt in it. But what does it mean to be salt? And we came up with five ways that uh, you uh, uh, kids out there uh, uh, who were at youth group remember, and, and you big kids who are here in church, you can also remember. You can be salty, S-A-L-T-Y. You can make the world a better place with your speech. The words you use are the things you say to others to build them up and not tear them down. You can be salty with your attitude, the way you think about things. You know, it's not always easy for kids, no matter how old you are, uh, if you're a little kid or a big kid, uh, to adjust your attitude. But Jesus says over and over, you have to adjust your attitude. You want to hit your enemy? No, you need to love your enemy. So you can be salty by changing your attitude. You can be salty by the way you lead others. Believe it or not, most people in the world have someone who's looking at them, looking for cues on what to do next, what to say, how to act. Is it okay to go this way? Is it okay to go that way? You can be salt in the world by the way you lead others. And T, you can use your talents, your abilities, the gifts you have been given by God, your hands, your feet, your mind, your heart, your lips, your eyes, your skills, the things you've Learn to do, you can use those to be salt in the world and make the world more delicious. Make it a better place. And lastly, we added a Y because we had five youth group meetings, so we needed salty instead of salt. And Luke helped me with this one a lot too because Y is not a very easy word to find an adjective for. But we decided to be salty in the world. You not only had to change the way you speak, your attitude, the way you lead others, the way you use your talents, but also in the way that you yield to the needs of others. The way you yield to the needs of others. You know, when you're driving or biking, to yield means to let someone else pass in front of you. But when it comes to being the salt of the earth, yielding means loving others and putting others in front of yourself. Remember what Jesus and the young lawyer discussed when they tried to figure out, when the young lawyer was trying to figure out what's the most important thing I can do with my life. And he said, love the Lord your God first, then love your neighbor as yourself, yielding to others. So that's, that's the salty life. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the salty life 
is a life that is delicious, a life that is different. Now, when it comes, excuse me, when it comes to light, he spends a little more time talking about light, doesn't he? But the metaphor that Jesus is using, you are the light of the world, it almost doesn't need explanation, does it? If salt makes the uh, things taste better, and I'm the salt of the earth, and it means that my life is supposed to make the world a better place. But if I'm also the light of the world, what does that mean? Well, what Jesus says is in our homes, we are to be lamps that share light to our families. In, as we move through the world, in our work, in our, in our travels, we are to be light uh, to all those that we come in contact with. And then lastly, that we are to be like a city on a hill, something for others to look at for hope and inspiration and guidance and truth and love. What does light do? Light illuminates. It shines on things. It helps us to see things that we couldn't see. Light is essential to keeping from stumbling and stubbing our toes and knocking things over, knocking each other over. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It needs little explanation. If salt is who we are, then shining is what we are meant to do as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You see, just like salt is no good if it doesn't taste salty, it's just sand, basically. In the same way, a lamp is no good if it's under a basket, if it's hidden in, behind black curtains in a dark cave somewhere. Light is meant to shine. Why would God want others to see the good works, our good works, and give glory to, his, to the Father in heaven? Because the kingdom of heaven is something that others are invited to join. The great English evangelist John Stott once put it this way. He said, Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on society. A negative influence by arresting its decay and a positive influence by bringing light into its darkness. For it is one thing to stop the spread of evil, it is another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. Salt stops decay. It changes our own inner decay. When we become salt instead of sand, we become something that preserves and makes the world a more delicious place. But when we become light in the world, then we not only allow, are allowed to see and able to see, but we can help others to see as well. That's the beauty of light. Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. And how will the world know? The world will know if the citizens of the kingdom have enough faith and enough love to share their saltiness and their light with the world around them. If we will be the salt of the earth, if we will be the light of the world, then the kingdom will continue to come day after day, year after year, age after age, culture after culture, people after people, family after family, until the kingdom 
has come into its fullness and when the king returns. And that day, when that day comes, I can't imagine what that would be like. There's a lot of descriptions in the parables, and we're going to look at a lot of them this summer, when Jesus says what the kingdom is like. But I'm not sure that in English or any other earthly language, there's quite enough words to explain exactly what it'll be like when the kingdom has come in full. But I can't wait to see it. Please pray with me. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. 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 